everybody's a teacher. I mean, that's I don't think we see ourselves mm-hmm. that way, but everyone has a responsibility uh, to lift up someone else and to, to be a teacher to another person. There are lots of people mm-hmm. that need mentorship. That was Maxine Clark, founder of Build-A-Bear Workshop. Hi, I'm Nancy Scanlon-Coppler, and welcome to Woman Overboard. Have you ever been told that you go overboard? Or maybe you have a friend, a partner, or a crazy aunt who overdoes it at the holidays. Someone who is overly ambitious, overly excited, and gets overwhelmed because she tends to overdo everything. Well, welcome to my world. I'm Nancy Scanlon Coppler, and this is Woman Overboard, a show about women, leaders, mothers, and entrepreneurs who are dedicated to making a difference. My guests would not be where they are today without being the overachievers that they are. Women who I believe put a positive spin on the words, woman overboard. I am so excited to have a guest here today who is also a friend, Maxine Clark, who has a very special title, Chief Bear of Build-A-Bear Workshop, which she founded in 1997, a teddy bear-themed retail experience, which now has more than 400 stores worldwide, and she has created a retail entertainment experience for children everywhere. First of all, Maxine, welcome to Thank Woman you. Overboard. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. And I want to talk about Build-A-Bear. We've got a number of subjects to talk about, and also your wonderful book, The Bear Necessities of Business, which everyone should read, by the way, if they're starting a business. But getting into Build-A-Bear, um, I heard, first of all, that you dipped into your retirement savings to start Build-A-Bear. What was your instinct that this would be such a good bet? Well, um, I knew that retailing was changing. It was 1996 late 96, early 1997, and that we were going away from giving the customer a great experience. And when I was a child, I loved to go shopping with my mother. Even though we had no money to buy anything, we would just look in the windows. And I felt that was missing. And I didn't know exactly what, but one day I was out shopping with my best friend, Katie, and we were looking for Beanie Babies at a toy store in our neighborhood. We couldn't find the Beanie Baby that she wanted. She said, you know, we could make these. Well, she meant go home to my house and do a craft project. But I heard something else. And this in my head, this, you know, Willy Wonka toy store where you could make your own stuffed animals opened up and came to life. And we went home, and she went downstairs and got out all the supplies to make the animal, mm-hmm. and she had already drawn it. And I went on my computer and started Googling what could I buy. Well, there was no Google. It was Netscape. <laughs> I was Netscaping uh, to find out. It doesn't even sound right, does it? No. Um, to find if there was a business, a teddy bear factory that I could buy mm-hmm. and turn into a retail store that I had seen in my head. Mm-hmm. So once I had that vision in my head and then I kind of sketched it. I'm not an artist, but I wrote it down. I started writing the business plan that night. I knew that it was worth my own money. Uh-huh. And actually, it was very hard to get anybody to invest in women, let alone invest in a retail concept called Make Your Own Stuffed Animals. At the time, I didn't even <laughs> have a name. So I knew that if I wasn't willing to put my own money forward, then who would? Who else would? So, and how, how did you then move forward? As you said, it was like a risk for other people as an entrepreneur to get other people. Like It's a really good story. Okay, I want to hear that story. Um, actually, I had my own money. Fortunately, I worked for the May Department stores for 
over 20 years and I had saved a lot of money and I had, so I had the wherewithal, which a lot of people don't have. I also had 40, I was 48 years old, so I had 48 years of life experience, which also a lot of young people don't have. They go out and they, sometimes it's better not to know what you're getting into, right. but I knew exactly what I was getting into. I knew where every mall in America was. I knew how to source products. I knew how to create a retail store. I had friends that had designed retail stores. So it wasn't like I didn't know what I was doing. I just had never done it on my own. I always had a big mm-hmm. company to do it. But um, well, sort of midway through the process before we opened the first store in, in July of 1997, there was an article in the St. Louis Business Journal that a writer had written about us. And that Friday, I got a phone call from a local entrepreneur who, Barney Ebsworth, and his office had called me to see if I was interested in taking on investors. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really need another investor yet, but I said, I'd love to meet you. I had heard of him. Uh, I didn't know him. I went over to his office on Monday. He agreed to invest in my business right there and then. And within 30 or 45 days, we had the money in the bank. And I didn't need it, but it was good to have it there to to move forward. So that's – it's sort of a St. Louis magic story. That's incredible. I know Barney is involved in boats, right? He was was involved. He passed away, but he was really an amazing partner, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly a first partner because he was an entrepreneur. And he knew what it was like to have people tell you Mm -hmm. you were crazy Uh and that you should still do it. Well, I hear there's a cute story about when you went to ask the bankers for money. Then mm-hmm. they did they think the idea was too soft. I might ask. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> mostly the local banks just didn't. They wanted us to put our house up for a mortgage. They wanted Bob to co-sign for me, my husband. They had a million things that they wanted to put in the way. Again, it was a little bit sexist. But finally, um, uh, I found a bank in Cincinnati. It was First Bank or Star Bank that eventually became U.S. Bank. Uh Um, But we bank with U.S. Bank in Cincinnati. We still do business with them because they cared enough to do business with us. Well, I hear that there was one of the bankers that you thought was insulting at first because he put his feet up on the table. And what did you notice? Their bankers were really nice, but they thought it was kind of a weird idea. But they, by my second meeting, they were starting to get it. And so this this one banker put his foot up, uh, you know, crossed his legs, actually. And I saw that he was wearing teddy bear socks. <laughs> so that was your indication. Yeah, and the that next they meeting, wa- somebody wore a teddy bear tie, <laughs> and you know they were kind of getting into the into the, the mood, mood. But they they still wanted me to put my house up as a as a collateral for the loan. They would have given me the money. They just wanted me to put up my personal property mm-hmm. and personal assets, which I think was silly because this was such a brilliant idea. Yep. And the U.S. Bank and the bank in Cincinnati did not ask me to do that. So how many years did it take to go global with Build a Bear? Uh, not very long. I think we opened our first store in 2004 in Japan and the second store in Korea and then Australia. So we were that was just seven years into it. It was pretty fast because the world is global and people were coming to St. Louis. Our first store was in St. Louis, but we opened up, you know, by the, by 2004, we had 100 stores wow. and they were all over the country and people would come to see different stores in different places. In 2001, we opened up in um, Disneyland. And so that brought a lot of foreigners to Disneyland, uh-huh. and they saw our store, and they wanted to open up a Build-A-Bear store in their country. So we were getting requests from, you know, early on, mm-hmm. um, but we didn't get around to it until 2004. Mm-hmm. And I know you had someone very influential in your life who was your role model. Can you talk a little bit about Well, my, my best role model was my mother. My mother was really a very strong uh, person. But she had a lot of role models in her life, and she brought them to my life. But her number one role model was Eleanor Roosevelt. My mother was her private traveling secretary, and she only worked for her when she traveled, but fortunately, Eleanor traveled a lot. Now, this was not a high-paying job, as you can imagine, but my mother loved it. Lots of benefits. And my (laughs) mother was an activist. She was uh, just stalwart for, if you said, 
yes, she said no. She was just <laughs> on the side of the other guy uh-huh. um, or the other child. And actually, after um, World War II, she moved to Miami, where my father was stationed in the, in the uh, Coast Guard. And she went to work starting a school based on Eleanor's encouragement with another uh, friend of hers for children with Down syndrome, except it wasn't called Down syndrome. Then it was called Mongoloidism. Right. My mother believed uh, strongly in the differently abled and that they should all have the right and the opportunity to live a a full life. At the time, I didn't know this. She was very ahead of her time. She was. My mother was, you know, a a four foot 11 powerhouse of a person. (laughs) Like you. But she kind (laughs) of, but more so. And, you know, she just, if you, she believed in something, she didn't ever veer from that. Mm -hmm. And, um, at the time, there was no – children with disabilities, let alone children with Down syndrome, had no rights. Right. So they were often institutionalized. Uh, parents would give birth to a child, and it was seen as a deformity and something that you couldn't mm-hmm. cure. And so th- maybe the life uh, expectancy was around 20, and now it's a lifetime. Yes. So that changed the way a lot of people looked at, at being an advocate for children, especially children with um, a disability. But now it's often mothers, it's women, it's aunts, it's sisters Mm -hmm. that um, advocate for someone in their family uh, and they get on their bandwagon and there's no stopping them. And my mother was one of those Mm -hmm. people. And so she was a great influence. And you had other mentors in your life, right, besides Eleanor Roosevelt and your mother? Oh, I had many mentors. I worked for great people in the May department stores that uh, guided me. Stanley Goodman was the chairman of the May Company when I went to work for the May Company. And he was here in St. Louis. He was truly a a visionary. Mm -hmm. He was a, a concert musician. He was a philanthropist. He was an art collector. And we had a bond. We would see each other in the elevator. He would uh, ask me how things were going. He would see me on an airplane and he would trade seats with the person next to me so he could sit (laughs) next to me. This is before corporate jets that the May Company had. He was just a great leader. And then when David Farrell became the the CEO of the May Company, he also became um, my boss, but also a tremendous uh, mentor to me Mm -hmm. and taught me all the things I didn't know I needed to Mm know. So... In order to get into retailing, you started at the Hecht Company, which was a division of the May Company. What was your job, and how did you rise so quickly? And what happened in your life that kind of changed the course of your career? Well, I moved to Washington, D.C. I wanted to go to law school. And I there were 11 law schools in Washington, D.C., so there was plenty to choose from. But I had to go to work in order to afford law school. So I went to work at the May Company, the head company in Washington, D.C., as an executive trainee. I finally got a job there. They told me I was overqualified, and I kind of wore my way into this job by meeting the then CEO of the head company, which was Alan Bluestein. And he happened to be in the restaurant when I was having uh, an interview with the guy in charge of HR um, and came up and talked to me and asked me a few questions. And he said to the guy, hire her you know, and pay her whatever the salary was at the time. And can you start on Monday? And I started on Monday and I had this great job. But a few months into it, my boss got sick. And so I had to quit law school in order to work full time at this job. Him. And because he was out, he had a heart attack. And in those days, you'd be out for six months or something. Sure. So I'm still, I took a leave of absence, which I'm still on today. <laughs> <laughs> and I found that retailing was just a great career for me. I was a creative person. I loved advertising and marketing, all the courses I took in, in college. I love those. And I was able to apply those right away. But mostly I was so curious. I was always willing to ask questions and mm-hmm. learn. And so the vendors, the people that sold us mm-hmm. products, taught me everything that I knew. And when I would go to a factory, they would take me on a two-day tour, basically, mm-hmm. and show me every little corner because I was so interested. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the advantages when you don't know. When you know what you don't know, you ask a lot of questions, and people will tell you more than you even thought you needed to know. Mm-hmm. And that helps you kind of figure out what it is, what's the future. Mm-hmm. So you, you kind of referred to being a woman 
and heading up a company and having to break down barriers. I think a lot of those are broken down now, but what did you specifically feel was your biggest barrier as a woman? I actually didn't really think about it too much because I just loved what I did. And retailing, there were women everywhere. They just weren't the president mm-hmm. of the company. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I wasn't surrounded by women. There were a lot of women buyers. There just weren't women merchandise managers or mm-hmm. vice presidents. And all I, the great thing about the retail business is that you see your results every single day. And then, you know, when I was buyer of the month and I was buyer of the year. And I was, so I got a lot of recognition for my results. Mm-hmm. So I say to everyone, I was lucky to be in a results-oriented business. And I, I took to it naturally. So every time, I was getting a lot of promotions. In fact, I got promoted to move to St. Louis, Missouri to work for the May Company. I didn't know St. Louis from Adam. You know, I just came here and uh, little did I know I would be here for, you know, 40 some years afterwards. But I worked, I got to work very closely with the, in the corporate office to see how we looked at acquisitions, to see how we looked at growing businesses. Mm -hmm. I got to see a whole other side of the business that um, you don't think of when you're a buyer. So I was in a place all the time where I could be measured and Mm -hmm. it wasn't about being female or male. It was about being successful. Right. And getting the right profits and the right sales going. And so once you do that, they can't, they don't want to stop you. They want to give you the fuel to keep going. You said somewhere once that everybody out of high school or rather out of college should go into retailing. Now, do you still feel that today since things have changed so much in retail? Well, I think people should be in consumer facing businesses because people buy your service or your product you need to talk to people and not just about computers and just looking at data. Data is the results of what people do, and it's amazing what you can do with it today. And actually, when I was early in my career, I would look at the way people charged on the, used the, at the May Company, every store had its own credit card. It wasn't like you could use MasterCard or mm-hmm. American Express. They just were starting to come out, but May Company only took the Heck Company card right. or the famous bar card. But if you looked at it, if a woman was buying a suit by Evan Pacone, what shoes was she buying? What perfume was she buying? What cosmetics was she buying? And that always intrigued me. And so I think that, uh, but I, but I could envision her in my head. I saw that woman in that suit. I saw what shoes she was wearing, and then I could personalize it. And I think if you're not in in a customer facing business, you don't get to know the human side of the business so that you can relate to them. I was also the target customer. I was a young woman just starting out in their mm-hmm. career. The working world was changing. Women needed a whole new wardrobe to go to work in executive mm-hmm. level jobs, and so it was fueling it. And I was I was very in touch with that because I mm-hmm. was that person. But I think if you're not exposed to a customer, you're just looking at numbers and they don't have the same mm-hmm. feeling. Well, you're obviously a people person judging by the, the little bearisms in the back of your book. Bears are measured by the size of their heart and a little bear hug makes a huge difference. Um, in talking about PR, which you obviously are very good at, you say the best way to get people buzzing about your business is to show them they are important. And, and then you talk a little bit about it, the mistake that happens when a customer walks away unsatisfied. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought that was very interesting because I yeah. think it happens too much. Well, when I was a little girl and I went shopping with my mother, um, just window shopping or just we would go into Woolworths. It wouldn't matter where we were. People always t- talk to kids as if they were a poor person. I remember one time we ate in the um, restaurant in, from Miami in Burdine's Tea Room my, for my birthday. And they brought over a ginger ale drink with a little parasol in it, a little paper parasol, like a, a kitty cocktail. I didn't turn into an alcoholic by having this ginger ale drink. I know that. You never drink. drink. With, <laughs> Ice a, tea. with a cherry in it. But I felt so special. And it really stayed with me. And my father was a salesman. And he always cared about the people that he called on. And he carried it in the trunk of his car 
little things to give away, whether it was a calendar, a pen, a bottle of perfume, emery boards. I mean, I carry some of these things yeah, in my right. purse today. My father, with his name on it, mm-hmm. with his company, because he just believed in that. Mm-hmm. And it was always, people looked forward to him mm-hmm. coming because they knew that he was going to think of them specially. And so those things wore off on mm-hmm. me. And I realized that when, when a child walked into our store, that all they wanted to do was somebody to say hello to them and to, you know, get down at their level, which wasn't hard for me because I was small too. But, <laughs> but we always had something to give a child. It didn't have to spend money in uh-huh. our store in order to walk away with something. And we also had a philosophy that if the customer, no one customer was ever going to put us out of business. So it was easy to have a rule book. Yes. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Especially when it was a child. And if a parent, if the child's happy, the parent is happy the or the grandparent is happy. I can remember very distinctly, uh, distinctly going to Stixbury and Fuller and getting that little parasol in my drink or my Sunday. And I think I've saved them all to this day. Yeah. <laughs> they I have, meant I so sa- much to me. Right. I saved them too. And I think that that's one of the things that maybe women are much more observant of that than men. But I remember thinking how special that was. And remember, we used to get dressed up to go to yes, the department store. White gloves. So it was always a, a special occasion. Mm-hmm. And now those things aren't there as much. And how do you it, – so it's harder to make a child feel special when they walk into a store or any person. But a smile is basically the the best tool that you have. And how you know probably yourself and how many experiences you've had where people – make you feel guilty for spending money in their stores if you're doing them a disservice instead of a service. And that is just crazy backwards. It is. Absolutely. Well, I just want to mention, I'm so happy to be able to call you a friend, but and you and Bob are an amazing couple. So you are a bear married to a fox, Mm -hmm. I might add. Anyone ever call you foxy lady? (laughs) I'm sure you hear that. but he definitely is a fox. Uh, How did you and Bob meet? We met um, at the Adventure stores. I was transferred from the May corporate office to Venture, and he was working as a merchandise manager, and I came in as the senior VP of marketing. And we met there at work, and I thought he was kind of, you know, he's very precise and very detail-oriented. I thought, this guy is a pain. I mean, he is like, <laughs> he won't let, I, one time I had to say, okay, leave so I can go get the work done that you want me to do here. I mean, if you want me to run that ad, I've got to go do it. And... Um, Eventually, we got to we. My boss wanted to promote him and said, "You don't really like him, do you?" And I said, "No, I think he's kind of you know arrogant and he was very friendly, sort of patronizing. I thought he was patronizing, but he isn't. He He was was just genuinely friendly. (laughs) No, he's just really a friendly, friendly person. Very much, and he really cared about everybody that way. And once I got used to that, then I fell in love and realized that there was this Mm -hmm. much bigger person behind the person who always wanted the advertising for himself. And how long have you been married? This will be 35 years. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you stepped down as chief executive bear in June 2013. I know you still carry the title. No, no one else does. How did you come to that decision? and Was it a hard decision to make? No. When I started Build a Bear, I was 48 years old, and I knew that there was only so many years left to do this, and I had other things I wanted to do. But we hit the recession in 2007 and 8 and 9. It was really tough years, and I couldn't leave then. Um, I didn't really have – and, and honestly, I had a person in the company that I thought was going to be the right person to take over, but then the recession came along, and that didn't turn out to be the right person. So I just decided that it, it was – if I didn't deal with it now as we were turning the business around um, – I might not find the right person, and I then I would not have the time left in my life to do the other things that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, we found a terrific person. Uh, we're a public company, so we had to announce it, and we had to go out on a search. And uh, Sharon John joined us in June of 2013, and you know that was the best decision I ever mm-hmm. made. I tell people the best thing you can do as the founder is to find your replacement because it's really difficult. It's difficult for a person to come in after a founder mm-hmm. um, because – there's a certain, you know, just 
connection that people have mm-hmm. with the founder of the business. Right. They come to work in that company for a person, more so than sometimes even a company, because you don't have a company yet. Um, but Sharon's terrific. She's creative. She's She loves the business. She would had similar background to me. She'd been in the shoe business and the toy business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, now it's been almost six years. It's hard to believe, but... Um, she's take she nobody else could have founded the company, but somebody else could have taken it right. to a new future, and she's definitely done that. And she's very positive, like yes, you are. <laughs> she's very positive. <laughs> I love that positive. P A W S. Love your plays on words. You have done so much to make children happy. Of course, first of all, by giving teddy bears, and thank you so much for all the teddy bears you've given to my eight grandchildren. <laughs> I might add that you've just made them very happy. Um, and then with enhancing children's education. You've started the Clark Fox Foundation. What was your first project that you did with your foundation? We started our foundation in 2004, but we didn't really have much time because we were both really involved in our businesses. So we gave to things that we that really mattered to us, like Teach for America and uh, KIPP schools, especially education, because I felt like it was my teachers that made such a huge difference for me and that we are really in a, in a challenging part of uh time in our history that mm-hmm. teachers are still not valued as much as I right. think they should be. And so I really wanted to attract, attract more talent to teach to education. And so we did that for for most of those years, um, really contributing to things that had to do with families and children. And, in, and then when those alumni of Teach for America uh, decided they wanted to start some businesses and, inc- and contribute to the mm. community, we invested in them as well. Mm. And many of them are doing wonderful things here. Uh, and we met so many other young people because of that. Uh, but then in, in, when we um, when I left Build-A-Bear and I had more time to look into it, we started looking at the it's still education was really important, but also entrepreneurship. I really felt that young people um, don't even know. I didn't know what an entrepreneur was. I don't even know if the word was invented when I was a child. But how could we inspire kids to use their brain to think about ways to solve our problems mm-hmm. of our community, let alone create new products and services? And then especially women and minorities, because it's really still hard for women and minorities to um, get money. Mm-hmm. Um, venture capital goes to about um, less than 5% of all women businesses mm-hmm. get funded by venture capital. So it's crazy, um, even in today's world. So we invested in that. We invested in um, a fund, Prosper Women's Capital, to uh, invest in other women, a, a broader business. And then um, we took we got interested in 2014 when Michael Brown was uh, shot. And we all had the headlines sort of taught us a lot of things mm-hmm. we didn't know about um, what the social determinants of health mm-hmm. and, and community. And one of those was um, the policing system. And mm-hmm. so we got involved. We didn't know anything about it, um, but we decided to learn. And we sat in our living room and invited people that were experts to come and talk to us and, and some of our friends. And lo and behold, we found out, boy, we just had no clue. And ever since then, we've been spending a lot more time in in doing things that educate a broader community. It's not that you have to go do all the work, but mm-hmm. you, you need to know what you're voting for. You need to know what's going on in your community. Just because it doesn't happen to you doesn't mean it doesn't happen to someone. Mm-hmm. And as we got involved in education, we saw that so many children were impacted by mass incarceration in the country. 2.7 million children have a parent um, or a close relative that they live with that is incarcerated. That changes a lot about a family oh, life. Oh, absolutely. And um, so, you know, there's not one answer. You know, when you turn over the rock mm-hmm. of education, there's a million spiders underneath. But you have to, you know, work at these, chip away at these and, and bring more people into, mm-hmm. the, into the knowledge fold so mm-hmm. they can make change uh, and hopefully encourage people to run for office, for school board, for um, county prosecutor, for senator, for city council. Mm-hmm. And we need young people who, who see the world through mm-hmm. a future um, point of view. 
um, one of the things I, I, I thinking about is Inspire. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that certainly ties into education. Yes, now. Inspire was founded by Charlie Cooksey, who was um, a, a TFA alum and a teacher in a middle school in St. Louis. And she saw how many bright kids <laughs> she had. And the only choices they had to go to in, in the city schools were, you know, sort of not great high schools. Mm-hmm. So she established a program so that they could go to um, be qualified to go to mm-hmm. the best high schools in St. Louis, including private high schools. And she worked really hard to find them uh, scholarships. And we believed in that. We thought why sh- every child should have a choice. And so um, Bob became her board chair and helped her uh, raise a significant amount of money uh, to educate these children. And every summer before even high school, they would work and Um, go to a summer learning institute Mm -hmm. that they um, created for them at SLU, and they would attend on a college campus, and they would be ready to take the test to go to a public, uh, to a private high school if that was the case, or Metro High School or some Mm -hmm. of the good public high schools that existed. But prior to that, they wouldn't have even been able to get in. And now those children, this is the first class, is graduating from Mm -hmm. college this year. Wonderful. Um, And uh, we're really excited to see um, how many of them have gone on to bigger and better things, mm-hmm. and also going on to graduate school. Uh, so that is really, um, it made a difference because we know children whose pri- sisters and brothers did not, were, were educated before Inspire, mm-hmm. that were wonderful, smart kids, but they didn't get this option to go to a private, mm-hmm. high-quality high school uh, or the public magnet school, and uh, they did not go on to college. And th- this class of, of Inspire, this mm-hmm. first class that's the college class of mm-hmm. 2019, is, um, you know, went to college and are succeeding and are going to change the world. And I'd like to highlight my dear friend, Rosemary Galmish, who is one of those wonderful teachers who gave of her time and has made such a difference in so many young people's lives. And I saw you and Bob so often at the restaurant with young people that you were mentoring. Mm-hmm. And there's probably a lot of people out there that would like to do that. How would you tell somebody who's maybe not, well, not many people are as involved as you are. How could people just an average person at home that's maybe not working and they've retired, how can they mentor young people today? Well, I think one thing, the one easy way for us was to mentor teachers because teachers are connected to their to the students in their classroom. And so through Teach for America, sponsoring those teachers and getting engaged with those teachers, and I know you did similar, mm-hmm. you meet their students. And, you know, when I, it, you ask questions and you get to know them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that everybody can be in a position like we were to kind of, let's say, let's go to a basketball game or, mm-hmm. or I mean, Bob went, to so many basketball games for the Inspire kids, wherever they were playing, wherever they were um, engaged. And that's because they let us. I mean, they, they, they told us stuff about themselves. They shared with us. And they became our friends, and their family became our friends, too. But mostly it started with Charlie. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was a, a core member. And we got yes. to know her more than just a, a teacher in a classroom. What were her ambitions? What were her... So I'd say that mostly it's, you know, be nosy. Mm-hmm. You know, ask questions. And maybe at first you won't get the answers that you want, or they'll just give you a yes or no. But keep probing, um, because these are, these are some of the most talented people... Uh, the potential to be so incredibly talented, to change the world, um, all for the right. And somebody mentored us. I mean, we we had probably a teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, that that stood out for us, that helped us see the way. And just everybody's a teacher. I mean, that's, I don't think we see ourselves Mm -hmm. that way, but everyone has a responsibility uh, to lift up someone else and to to be a teacher to another person. There are lots of people mm-hmm. that need mentorship and mm-hmm. welcoming to that friendship, but they have become our friends. They've become our family in so many different ways that we're just lucky to share with them and the joy of, of their own young lives. And that's the, that is true joy. 
And, and I can see how much it's enriched your life. You're oh. just bubbling with enthusiasm talking about it, them. It is. We're so proud of them. Maxine, thank you so much for joining us today on our show. I've loved hearing about your career in the business world and your endearing relationship with your husband, Bob, and the passion you have for St. Louis youth. As much as I hate to end our conversation, I am so excited you'll be joining us again next week, where our listeners will hear more about your very important mission to making our community a much better place. For more information about Maxine Clark, or if you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor or commenting on today's show, go to womanoverboard.com. And as always, you can email me with any questions or comments at nancy at womanoverboard.com. Thanks for listening.